Well, then let's do this. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. We have a full house in the studio today. Joining me in the studio is Jillian Rowe. Hello. Jillian, you are not in Doha anymore, are you? No, I am, Where was I am that? in New Hampshire right now. New Hampshire. That's yeah. got to be similar, right? Well, I mean, you know, in, similar in some ways, less similar in others. There's a lot of trees and grass and uh, deer. Deer, some like deer Ooh. ran across the road while I was driving today. So that was fun. <laughs> it was very like New England too, because everybody stops and just like chills out and waits for the deer. Right on. Also in the studio, Jonathan Hall. Hey. Welcome. And then our special guest of the day, Pete Hunt. Welcome, Pete. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you here. So um, we did a little pre-gaming before we hit the record button, but for um, the audience members who weren't listening because we weren't recording, uh, you want to provide a little background info for us? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, my name's Pete. Um, and actually, Jillian, I'm in uh, north of Boston right now, so probably not that far away from you. And I oh, really? Where? last night. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, calling in from Salem, Massachusetts, actually. Oh, my aunt lives in Salem. That's yeah. fun. Go. Oh. Send me some pictures in the autumn when all the fun autumn Salem stuff is happening. Well, I, I actually stay far, far away from Salem when it's uh, when it's witch season. It's very, very packed. <laughs> yes, no fun. <laughs> witch season is my favorite season. I was hoping this conversation would go down that path. <laughs> when exactly is witch season? Well, witch season if, is all seasons. Yeah, if um, if you're familiar with the Salem witch trials, the yeah. the famous Salem witch trials, I'm I'm mere steps away from where a lot of the witches were tried and taken care of. Okay. Which is uh, um, and so like around Halloween, uh, basically, you know, this is this is like a, a seaside, you know, kind of sleepy seaside town, and then like buses of people pour until it's in. witch killing season yeah until it's october <laughs> and then then you can't get around anywhere and so most of the locals actually flee um and they they go to uh, they go on vacation um someplace warmer uh and, and the, the tourists take over wait is that vacation with the finger quotes <laughs> i think it, it i think it depends on how old your kids are uh whether it's a it's a relaxing vacation or not right on so oddly enough, we are actually going to talk about in this episode um, data-related stuff in addition to witches. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm the I'm the CEO of this company Elemental. We make Dagster. Uh, Dagster is an open source data orchestrator. Um, can get into what that actually means. Um, and uh, and you know we we have a commercial product as well. Uh, but but really. The project was started a couple of years ago, just to maybe give give a little bit of background about me and, and the company. Uh, the company and the project was started a couple of years ago by uh, Nick Schrock, who um, co-created GraphQL uh, back at Facebook. I, I was a, you know, a founding member of the React team at Facebook as well. So we kind of had ran in the similar open source circles. And when he was leaving uh, Facebook to go do the next thing, was asking around and saying, hey, you know, what are some big impactful problems that I can go solve? So, you know, working in social media, they're impactful products, but they're not exactly like solving 
society's big problems. You know what I mean? Um, maybe they're even creating some, uh, but but <gasps> no. they are. No, 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 no. That's, Tech that's doesn't for a create different any problems. Like, let's not be ridiculous here. But the the, the the point is, you know, you work there for a while and then you say, okay, like maybe I want to go solve problems in, you know, uh, pharma or bioinformatics or energy or, or you know, really systemic finance, uh, right? Like big society kind of societal level problems. And when he was going around talking to folks, you know, what he heard back was, hey, managing our data is actually the biggest problem that we have. You know, whether you are a pharma company or an energy company or any of these kind of really important bedrock companies, you know, they just had trouble understanding, you know, where is their data coming from? Where is it going? What are the properties of that data? Is it meeting SLA? And they couldn't answer like very basic questions about the state of their data. And so, um, you know, Nick's point of view and the point of view shared by me and, and everybody else working on the project is that this is a software engineering problem fundamentally, right? And so if you took a look at kind of why they couldn't answer those questions, it was because they weren't leveraging software engineering best practices. They weren't leveraging these kind of DevOps principles that, been, uh, that have been adopted by a lot of different software engineering disciplines over the years. Um, and so we really started Dagster to, to bring these software engineering or DevOps best practices to these data teams. And I think DevOps best practices might mean something a little bit different depending on who you talk to. And I can get into what that means, but just want to pause there. It's kind of like, like that's what we're here to do. So I have a, a, a brief anecdote. I, I was working uh, for a startup a few years ago and we hired a couple of data engineers. I'm not going to say any names because I don't want them to get anybody in trouble. <laughs> they don't work there anymore. They'll never listen to this podcast, but still. Um, <laughs> We had a little bit of a, uh, a headbutting session uh, for a few weeks where the data guys were like, hey, we need access to the, to the production data and the production repositories and blah, blah, blah. You know, we just, you know, cut us free to do our stuff was, was kind of their attitude. And, uh, you know, I was I was leading the, the sort of SRE team, you know, trying to manage the infrastructure and like wanted to give them the freedom to do the things they needed, but without, you know, giving them. Uh, you know, the ability to like destroy the company and, and, and leak customer data and crap like this. And they're like, uh, so, so you know, they went back and forth for a while. And I said, hey, look, you know, I can't give you the access you're asking for. We have to follow best practices here. And they said to me, one of them said to me, we do best practices. I said, no, your request to give you root access to the servers is literally the opposite of best practices. <laughs> <laughs> There's no possible way you're convincing me of this. But Jonathan, it's best for me. So like, where's the line of the best practices here? Like, where, where does that Trust come me, in? It is not best for you, Jillian, to give oh, you access to our customer data like this. So I'm, I'd love to hear what you have in mind, like some specifics. What kinds of things are best practices here? Um, or maybe I'm wrong. And maybe these guys really did have best practices in mind. And I'm just thinking backwards. Um, yeah. So, th I mean, this, this, is a, this is a great question. And, and I can kind of dig into maybe why their view of best practices was a little different. So I, I think, first of all, there's a certain level of maturity that different sub-disciplines of software engineering kind of go through. And, and I had gone through this, you know, back in the day with React.js, right? Like back in 2010, 2011, front-end was not a true software engineering discipline, right? Like unit testing was not widely developed. CICD wasn't really a popular thing, even though it was starting to get adopted at kind of some more kind of infrastructure and back-end services organizations. Um, static analysis and kind of th these great 
dev tools like we have today, like Visual Studio Code, for example, were not widely developed. And even kind of table stakes, like a module system, uh, still wasn't very popular back then, right? And so over time, you know, React was a part of the story, but Node.js, CommonJS, TypeScript, a whole set of technologies kind of rose up and brought front-end engineering um, to where it is today. And it still gets a lot of criticism, some of it justified, but the developer experience today in front-end and the quality of stuff that, that small teams are able to produce today is way better than it was 10, 15 years ago. And, and certainly browsers have evolved since then too. Not, not trying to take away from that, but like, you know, the adoption overall of software engineering best practices has really revolutionized that category. And so kind of moving over to the, the state of, of data, right? Like CICD is not widely adopted. Um, unit testing is very difficult in the data domain and is therefore not widely adopted. Even the technologies available, you know, um, I think, you know, once the state of the art data teams today are still doing a lot of string interpolation and building giant strings of SQL and running them. And it can actually be quite difficult to, um, to code review those, those large SQL strings. And, you know, I, I used to work at Twitter and Trusted Safety, and we would kind of do large data analysis and create batch jobs to try to identify, you know, fake user accounts, for example. And there were these 10,000 line SQL queries that were really hard to, to debug. Um, those were often generated by, you know, thousand line Python scripts. And so now you have to debug two things at once. <laughs> um, and, you know, e even in the, the Python domain, right, like static typing is still a relatively new thing. Um, unit testing is a bit, you know, more widely adopted in the Python world, but still amongst data practitioners, it's still a relatively new phenomenon. And so, you know, I think, first of all, the data practitioners, they haven't had access to really high quality tools that make this easier. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why we started Daxter. Um, the second thing, though, and I think that this is like somewhat unique to data, is that setting up a safe um, and representative testing environment, it's a challenge in any um, engineering discipline. But I think it's especially challenging in domains like machine learning and analytics, where it is really hard to create a synthetic data set that like matches the production data set the, um, in all the different statistical ways that you need to. Um, so oftentimes these data teams, like you might say, hey, you know, we're going to build you a staging environment. It's going to have mock data. You can test your pipelines there. It's like, yes, we can test our pipelines run correctly, but we can't necessarily test that our analysis or our outputs are correct without having a way to run this on the actual production data set. Now, if you're asking people or if people are asking to develop on production data, that opens a whole can of worms, right? Like you don't want to accidentally load up your production infrastructure with too much traffic that affects, you know, kind of legitimate production data or production traffic. You know, there's a bunch of hairy compliance issues around, are you, do you have a, a business purpose for using the data? Are you handling it in the way that customers and regulators and, and internal security teams expect? And are you, when you're writing derived data sets, so you're training that machine learning model or you're creating that report, um, how can you make sure you're not accidentally overwriting the production data with, with staging or test data from somebody's laptop. So there's a whole mess of, of issues that I think are somewhat unique to the data domain, but also they're, they're just kind of earlier on the, on the adoption curve for some of these technologies. Does that jive with your experience, Jonathan? Yeah. I mean, I, I really feel like, uh, so I've never been really involved in, in the data world, but I, I've managed people doing data and, and I've worked with people doing data. And I always feel like they're kind of they're learning the same things I was learning 15 years ago. 
in terms of you know the the best ways to to script things and to to package things you know like just just the whole idea of having reproducible something rather than just let's try it on the server and then once it works okay then we'll we'll commit it to 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 git if we're even using git yeah you know uh rather than you know doing some sort of of uh you know uh predictable process to to get to their end result you know uh i i've never heard of test driven data engineering <laughs> i'm sure it exists yeah. somewhere but it's not common <laughs> there they're working on it. Um, so if you hear the terms data quality or data contracts being thrown around, that's kind of the data domain's take on, on uh, automated testing. It's not necessarily test-driven development, but, um, but there, is, there is a lot of innovation happening in the category right now, and it's getting a lot better um, every month. But yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. And like the state of the art for building data pipelines is this thing called Apache Airflow. I, I guess it's not the state of the art, but it's the most widely deployed um, way to build data pipelines. Have you guys heard of this project at all? I love Airflow. That's, yeah, that's like, <laughs> I didn't know if I could mention it on this show, but so far Airflow is my favorite of all all of these tools. But I haven't used Daxter yet. So, you know, there's still there's still time. Well, you know, like um, every organization, they have different constraints, right? But Airflow was kind of the first swing at bringing some of these DevOps uh, best practices to the data domain, right? So this was like the first time that you could actually build a data pipeline um, and like commit the code to Git and it was in version control and you could actually like run it programmatically. Uh, there were, I mean, there were some earlier systems, but this was the first one that got like really dominant. Uh, and maybe for those that don't know what a data pipeline is, um, you know, Every business kind of runs on data and, and um, whether that's a report that's like kind of guiding the board as to what strategic decisions they should make, or it's a machine learning model that's powering a recommender system or a drug discovery system, or, you know, something that's just tracking the status of thousands of experiments and then logging the results into a data warehouse. These are all uh, products of data pipelines. So you can think of it as like a, like a series of steps on one side of the pipeline, a bunch of source data comes in, it all gets combined together and transformed and then gets spit out the other side as machine learning models, reports, tables in the data warehouse, files in S3. You know, uh, we would call those like data assets. And Airflow was like a great first attempt at, at kind of reigning in this chaos, you know, about like 10 years ago. The problem with Airflow, though, is that it's kind of, it made some decisions that were state-of-the-art 10, 15 years ago, uh, more like 10 years ago, um, that are kind of a little long in the tooth now. Um, so a great example is, is you know, it's, it's quite difficult for large organizations to share a single Airflow instance because they're constantly fighting over dependency versions and dealing with Python environment challenges. And so oftentimes what teams do is they they say, okay, we're, we're going to have as little code in Airflow as possible. We're going to have it only orchestrate, you know, Kubernetes pods or Docker containers and so every every team can like build their own Docker container and orchestrate that with with Airflow, um, but that becomes like really cumbersome and slow, and you have to kind of match your your like Docker build pipeline has to be aligned with your with your Airflow deployment pipeline. That gets really challenging. And so, you know, I think one of the main criticisms that that folks have from Airflow is is that it really orchestrates these black box tasks where the orchestrator doesn't really know what's going on in the test. So it's basically calling functions in the right order and then rerunning them when an exception happens. And um, that can 
make it quite difficult to like observe the state of your data pi- your data pipeline um, and react to to different failure modes um, in like kind of an intelligent way. So I don't know. There's a lot that, to talk about Airflow. It's like it's a great technology when it came out, um, but you know our point of view is that it was kind of locked into some decisions that were made you know a long time ago that it's it's paying the price for now. So on that note, um, I didn't. I worked with Airflow probably five or six years ago now. And that's what we did is we used Airflow as the orchestrator to launch ECS tasks so that you didn't have multiple teams fighting for the finite resources of your Airflow instance. I didn't realize that was a common pattern. But um, but along those lines, how does, how does Dagster handle that same problem? So we... There's a couple of answers to that question. I, the fundamental challenge, and it's not just with Airflow. Like, there's there are other systems out there too that that folks use. Um, you know, Luigi's an older one, and um, Prefect is a newer one. But still, fundamentally, they are about sequencing a set of tasks that run one after another. And you can think of a task as just like a Python function or a Bash script. It's a black box that like runs. It either fully completes or it doesn't. And if it doesn't all you know is that it failed for some reason. You don't really know why. And so this is a pretty leaky abstraction. And it's pretty hard to, to kind of take this abstraction and attach a lot of these software engineering best practices. So for example, right, like if you have two tasks that execute one after another, a, a really common way that this works is you hard code an S3 path into both tasks. And so one writes the file into S3, and then the second one reads it back out. Now, what happens if you're in a situation where both of those run, they complete successfully, but for some reason, the file is not in S3. You know, the, the, the orchestration tool can't help you with that, right? Like it just, you got to go spelunk through all the logs, you know, maybe the retention policy was set incorrectly on the S3 bucket, like who knows what happened, um, but it becomes a big, uh, a big hassle to debug. And, you know, I think that, um, that kind of speaks to a missing or, or um, like the abstraction layer in Airflow is like too low level is, is kind of our point of view. And so we think that thinking in terms of tasks, it's not the way to do it. Uh, you need to kind of think at a higher level and think in terms of data assets. So rather than model task A, task B, task C, which might be producing and consuming various different data assets, you kind of model the user's table or you model the, um, the, the inventory forecast as separate, like independent code artifacts. These generally take the form of Python functions. They don't have to, but normally in Dagster, they take the form of Python functions running in their own Python environment. But behind the scenes, you know, we run them in a separate um, ECS task or, uh, or Kate's pod. And um, that these individual assets can, with a strong type system, specify their upstream dependencies and so you can kind of assemble a strongly typed lineage of your entire data platform. Um, and uh, we kind of do this in a way that is language agnostic. Like I said, normally um, these are expressed as Python functions, but uh, we have kind of plugins that support, you know, um, DBT, for example. So we can natively in- ingest like a DBT graph, which is a SQL-based, um, you know, data transformation system. And so you can model your whole heterogeneous data platform in like one system strongly typed dependencies between them. And then you can kind of attach different policies to the individual assets. So rather than say, hey, I want a cron job that runs once a day that runs this big pipeline that produces in, you know, a half a dozen assets. On each individual asset, you can say, hey, 
I want this thing to be updated at least once a day, or I want this thing to be updated um, at least once a week, but no more than once a day because it's quite expensive to compute. And then you can let the, the orchestrator take those, those set of SLAs and figure out what schedule to run these things on. And so this is like uh, kind of like a reconciliation algorithm. And so if you kind of think about the before and after, like the world before Terraform and the world after Terraform or the world before Kubernetes, world after Kubernetes, the world before React, the world after React. These are all systems where you kind of declaratively specify what you want the state of the world to be. And then some big complicated orchestration system under the hood, like goes and figures out when to run things, how to converge the state of the world to the desired state specified in code. And so that's kind of like, we're bringing that same reconciliation model to the data domain. Um, so this is what I mean when I talk about like, you know, bringing DevOps and software engineering best practices to the data domain, right? We're talking about like static typing. We're talking about like, you know, strong lineage across different languages. We're talking about adopting kind of declarative programming. All of this stuff, uh, I think, is is really what, what kind of matches the mental model of these folks and also can kind of produce higher quality software that can actually be cheaper to run. What's the... Um... Like whenever you try to roll this out for a new team, what's the, for lack of a better term, what's the sales pitch to talk to the data teams to say, hey, we're going to take away your ability to just write raw SQL on production databases and give you this instead? How do you, how do you sell them on that? Well, you know, I think different organizations have different constraints. And so that's not, the, the sales pitch is not, we're taking away your capability to run raw SQL. That, that is up to your data platform team or, or whatever the team internally that manages um, that manages those policies. I mean, our, our point of view is that we want to give you really, really sharp tools so you can exactly kind of carve out um, the capabilities and permissions and, and um, you, know, at, you know, actually deliver exactly what the organization needs at that time, right? So if, if this team over here is not ready to adopt fine-grained access control for whatever reason. Seeing that happen at like every large company, right? Information security comes in. They say, "Hey, you know, we're operating in the EU now. We have all these new rules that we have to comply with." And then this team over here uh, says, "Hey, we just we need six months before we can comply, and the rest of the organization needs two weeks." You know, you can kind of deploy those policies to most of the organization and just really limit your your blast radius. And so that's why like a multi-tenant data platform is really important. One that supports multiple teams owning their own environments, owning, you know, some degree of their own infrastructure if they want to. So, so really our sales pitch is first and foremost, um, developer experience, right? So again, DevOps best practices, it's, it's all about shifting left. It's all about empowering small teams to work autonomously and deliver their stuff end to end and own it themselves. Um, we think that really, you know, Powerful tools are, are an important part of that. And so best in class CICD, local development, testing, that kind of thing. If you, you know, if you pay us for our commercial product, um, are you guys familiar with Vercel, by the way? The like front end? Um, yeah, very much nope. so. Yeah, so, so if, if you're not familiar with Vercel, um, you know, you could call them just like a hosting company, but they're really much more than that. So if you have a React application or JavaScript application of any kind, you you know, install their GitHub app to your repo. And what it will do is it will build the JavaScript and HTML and CSS, bundle it for you. But then what's really cool is that anytime somebody sends a pull request, it will rebuild the whole website just for that pull request. 
And then you can go click around the website and share it with your product manager or your designer and get feedback about it and if it and test it. And if it looks good, then you just click the merge button and you can merge to production. It's like really, really great um, developer experience. Um, and so, you know, we've for our commercial product, we've brought that experience to the data domain. So we can kind of like fork your production environment for every pull request. And so you can like test in a in a pretty safe uh sandboxed environment um, before oh, wow. you merge to production. That's that that cool. one you got to pay us for. Everything else is... Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, have it's, some things behind the paywall. I find that like really a, interesting. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's like a drug deal. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if it's like a drug deal. Um, <laughs> the first hit's free. The good stuff you got to pay for. <laughs> well, I mean, it. listen, it, it's the the... We think that first and foremost, like we want the open source project to be like a real open source project, one that's actually usable. And so, you know, a, a lot of our biggest deployments are the open source project. They're not commercial customers. And so, you know, like DoorDash is a good one where there's an open source user and that's great. And they were able to work, make it work at their um, at their scale. Uh, but, you know, what we try to do is basically say, OK, for for stuff that large organizations want to pay for so audit trails, rules-based access control, things like that. Um, things that like start to break when you get a, get a larger team. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's really kind of where we kind of draw the line for, um, for what goes into open source versus uh, the commercial product. I find like the emphasis on the data to be really interesting. And I think what made it really click for me was when you said it's, kind of similar to Terraform in a way. And it, it made me realize that when I write Terraform code, I almost never really think about dependencies. Like I never say this. I, I Okay, fine. I mean, occasionally, usually if I'm doing something kind of kludgy that Terraform's not really meant to do, but we'll, we'll save that conversation for another day. Uh, <laughs> but for like mo- the most part, I don't actually declare dependencies in Terraform. I just, it just has this sort of kind of like an ORM, I guess, in the background that has like, this is the this is the model for an EC2 instance or a subnet or a cluster, or, like, you know, whatever it is. And you just put all those things in there. And then underneath the hood, Terraform figures out like the state and the dependency tree and does all that. Whereas, and, and I don't know if this is still true in Airflow. So, you know, like, don't come after me, internet. But uh, you used to have to declare each one of the dependencies for your tasks, like explicitly, you would have to say like, okay, task A, depends upon task B, depends upon task C. And there was no real way to do that kind of um, stateful mapping. I'm not sure I'm not sure how much that has changed. I know like, for example, in Prefect, um, at least on the, the newer version, you can kind of do that where you just write your Python functions and it kind of figures out the state for you underneath the hood. But that's, yeah, that's, that's like really interesting. So do you, do you have to kind of like map out the whole all of your like data infrastructure and kind of have like an ORM for everything for Dagster to be able to figure that out or not? Are, are there like integral steps or did I completely miss the mark there? Like what? No, no not at all. You're, you're spot on, you know, and um, ha- happy to talk about kind of like these other, um, these other tools too. Cause like we, we, for example, like I think we've got a pretty different approach philosophically than Prefect, right? Even though we're kind of, we're both second movers and can kind of learn from, from kind of airflow. I think there's different philosophies. So, um, to answer your question, um, you know, one of our one of our um, you know big selling points besides like developer experience is 
um, observability. So being able to see that lineage and being able to see the state of every data asset and how it's changed over time. So we we have the belief that like that should be built statically upfront and um, and should be knowable without running each task. Prefect takes a different approach, and they like the the lineage comes after the the execution runs, and they're they're there's they 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 have a lineage of tasks that they assemble as the as the tasks execute, which you can't really see upfront. So that has different trade offs for like how expressive the programming model is versus how observable things are, in, in my opinion. Um, so uh, to answer your question, we do have uh, various integrations with popular. Um, you know, data engineering systems. So the ETL tools of the world, like Fivetran and Airbyte and Stitch, um, the data warehouses of the world, like Databricks and Snowflake and S3, um, as well as, uh, you know, kind of transformation tools. So um, DBT being one of the most popular ones. And so the way that that works is kind of those, um, those integrations will uh, in, find a way to kind of introspect and get a set, you know, get that graph of, of dependencies from whatever system it is. So in dbt, for example, it has a built-in notion of different models and the dependencies between them. We can ingest those directly and like connect them to the rest of your data platform. So for example, if you use something like Fivetran, which will pull data in from Salesforce or some other third-party library and land it in your Snowflake data warehouse, and then you use dbt to make some data transformations within Snowflake to build up some summary tables, and then maybe use something like Looker or Hex to visualize that data for the business stakeholder at the end, right? Um, you can have cron jobs that schedule each of those to run at exactly the right time, but it becomes very difficult if you're just using cron to, at the end of, to, to take a look at that report and know for sure whether you integrated all the data or not, right? Because like one of those jobs could have failed, one of them could have been late, et cetera. And so in that case, you know, we would use our you know, Fivetran integration, DBT integration, Snowflake integration, Hex integration to tie all that stuff together so you could get that full lineage and that full view of, of the world. And so this is what I mean when I say, like, you know, if you can kind of bring a higher level of abstraction to the problem, um, a lot of benefits just kind of fall out of that automatically. I don't know, is that making sense at all? No, that makes that. perfect sense. And I really, I like that way of looking at, at it because, you know, like in my line of work, a lot of time... I'm talking to um, scientists or people doing clinical research or what have you. And when I'm talking to the scientists, they only care about the data. And when I'm talking to the data engineers, they only care about the code. And it's always been the case, uh, you know, like, so let's say when I've used something like Airflow, I'm just giving that as an example because it's the tool that I'm most familiar with. Sure. Like, and I, I'm trying to give some kind of insights to, uh, you know, to like the researchers or to the, uh, you know, like the biologists, the people who actually care about the data. And I always have to like kind of flip the context on its head because we'll be in like the airflow dashboard and I'll be like, well, this is how you search for your sample. And then it comes up with a bunch of like, you know, code uh, gobbledygook that like the researchers don't know about and they don't care about because what they want to know is like, okay, was this data analyzed and where can I, where can I go find the results? And then, you know, preferably where can I go visualize these results? So I'm wondering, does it, does Dagster kind of set you up from the beginning? Like, let's say, for example, that I have um, an S3 bucket that a CRO is constantly putting new cancer data in there that I have to analyze, and it's really annoying, and I need to make sure that, let's say, it's analyzed, and it's analyzed correctly because it's very expensive data, and if it doesn't get analyzed correctly, I'm going to lose my job. 
you know, and I have to be able to communicate this to like the, I don't know, the clinical research director or something like that. Does Dexter kind of make that conversation easier? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it, by the way, I assume CRO is not the chief revenue officer. Is that like a, a, no, a contact research organization? Um, it's like a, a company that you can hire to like kind of clean your data or to sometimes do data analysis. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's like a data science. It's a data science agency, let's say. Got it. Got it. And so they're, they're dumping CSVs or parquet files in S3 that contain. Your oh, data. they're they're dumping like legacy bioinformatics formats that may or may not be, uh, you know, in the same structure every time, and you know, uh. raw alignment data and string data, and you know, sometimes CSVs, sometimes Excel, sometimes Word documents, because you know, you never know what you're going to get that day. You just sounds you like, never know. What, sounds like what my earlier mentioned team would have called best practices. Exactly, Jonathan. Exactly, but you know, like. Sometimes those docs have like things that are nicely highlighted in them. Sometimes they have comments. Sometimes what happens is that the CRO will send the document and they'll forget to remove the comments and it'll just be like WTF, WTF, like in the document. <laughs> so assume we, we there's a lot of that kind of thing happening. We, we hired somebody and, and he was telling us that in a previous role, he was building data pipelines. And one of his data sources he had to ingest was a, uh, a PowerPoint that was dropped in an FTP server once a day. And he had oh, to like, yeah. parse out a, ta- a data table from the middle, from some slide, because the whatever company wouldn't give them the underlying data. It was really uh-huh. cool. I um, believe it. Yeah. So, so if you think about it, right, like what, what is the common language or the common thing that everybody collaborates on and talks about, right? It, it is the data asset. Like the CRO doesn't know what tasks or schedules or jobs you know, you're using an airflow to like kind of ingest your data and transform it and, and process it. Really, they they think in terms of assets, and I'm sure that your your stakeholders at the other side they're performing some experiment, right? Or they're um, they're doing some analysis that produces another data product or data asset at the end of the day with the results. So the the lingua franca of whether you're an analyst, a business stakeholder, a data engineer, the infrastructure engineer that's like kind of building the underlying infrastructure, it, it still is all about moving around and transforming data assets. And so um, we have this like kind of single lineage, which is a big DAG, um, where every single data asset is like a box, and then all of its dependencies are, are kind of specified. And you can see, and then you can attach arbitrary metadata to it, right? So, um, and that can be time series data, that can be strings, it can be whatever you need. And so what, what you can do is then like share, and, and what a lot of our customers do is they just share access, read-only access to this thing with all of their stakeholders. And so step one, when there's a problem with the data is the stakeholder goes into this, into the Dagster UI and, you know, searches, like types in their asset name, jumps right to it and they can see, okay, uh, where in this, the, where is the red spot in this graph? And like, I should go talk to that team first. So it kind of helps, I think, um, you know, it helps folks like self-serve and it helps people understand the data platform um, by kind of making this really observable in first class. And, 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 you know, you had mentioned S3, right? Like another challenge with a lot of uh, these, um, these data tools is um, testing can be really hard. So, you know, a lot of companies are hard coding um, these S3 URLs into their, or at least the S3 file structure into their individual tasks. 
And so one of the, one of the kind of principles that we have is, is um, we, and again, one of the like um, software engineering best practices that we bring in, um, I hate to say this word, but like, I'm going to say it, it's dependency injection, but it's actually good dependency injection. It's not like a horrible <laughs> dependency injection system, uh, but it's, it's a, not it's a light... JavaScript dependency injection, maybe. Oh man, I, I've spent, um, spent a lot of time writing um, like spring back, uh, back a couple jobs ago. And there was a lot of dependency injection in that code, you know, five Java files to do the, the task of one function, but it's, it's not like that. But the point is that like, for example, you know, if you have code that's talking to S3, you get like an S3 client injected into your, into your task by default. And so the kind of expectation if you're writing Dagster code is you use that system. And so if you want to develop locally, you can inject like a mock S3 client and all of your kind of production code should work with minimal, if any, changes. Um, and so the, again, the, the goal here is like, let's make it unit testable. Let's make it easy to develop locally. And then um, if you've got those capabilities, then you can do that branch deployment thing where you send a pull request. We inject a new S3 client that points to the staging area um, S3 instance that we maybe create on the fly or prefix the, the paths on the fly for that branch. And so, you know, just like tons of, of stuff falls out of, of, again, like a higher level abstraction and adopting software engineering best practices. That's super cool. Yeah, I get pumped up about this stuff, by the way, because I, I don't know, I, I love dev efficiency. It's been like a thing that I've, I've worked on my whole career and I just really love it. Well, it's, I think one of the cool aspects of this is you see how, because what you're describing is a pattern that we've seen before with like React, as you've mentioned, and the things that it's enabled. And when what you're describing here is that same level of efficiency and amplification of productivity to a different, uh, different aspect of software engineering. Yeah. And I mean, so, so front end was it was a good example of you know where it was kind of a little bit in the stone age before, and then browsers got better, TypeScript came around, module systems came around, systems like React came around, and, and it, it got a lot easier to work with. But you know, I mean, if you even remember um, cloud infrastructure back in the day, um, we had these really gross Python scripts that you had to run in the right order in order to create a new environment. And they were always broken because you ran them once a quarter or something to recreate <laughs> the cloud environment. And it was just, it was just disgusting. Um, and, and then Terraform comes along, right? And it, it just completely eliminated that level of pain. And it's just saved us weeks of engineering time uh, every quarter to, to kind of uh, debug that stuff. And, and so this is not a thing that's like a one, I, I don't think this is a thing that's a one-off in front end or a one-off in data. I think that this is just a general trend where we've realized that like, you know, dev tools that have a reconciliation loop somewhere in there tend to really make a lot of problems easier to solve. And so, um, you know, I think that playbook can be repeated across a bunch of different domains. We're, we're, doing, um, we're doing it in data, but I'm sure there's a bunch of other domains you can use it on. Oh, for sure. So let's, um, do you want to talk about your business model? Because I find it really interesting building an open source product and then trying to turn that into a 
business that can afford its employees and and all the stuff that it takes to run a business. And that's a really hard problem to solve. You want to talk about that a little bit? You okay with that? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. Um, cool. Yeah. And first of all, I can like totally acknowledge that like we're an open source led business and we're venture backed. And anytime that that conversation happens on like Hacker News, like it becomes a very spirited discussion. <laughs> Good um, word choice. And so I'm, I'm happy to I'm happy to have a you know spirited discussion about that if that's the point of view of anybody on this on this call. You know, like um, I think it's I think it is um, it is important to to talk about and get right. You know, um, so first of all, like I mentioned, um, we we started with a with building an awesome open source project, and our belief is that we can't build a successful business without a successful open source project. So actually, like, believe it or not, the open source project is like more important than growing the commercial business. The growth in the open source project is more important than the growth of the commercial business. Um, and the uh, the reason for that, if you want the like blood sucking capitalist reason for that, it's like, it, you know, it's a low cost of acquisition cost funnel, right? Or low customer acquisition cost funnel, right? People discover the open source project, they try it out. Like, um, if it was a purely closed source model, we would have sales engineers demoing all that time. So it it saves us a lot of money, and users get a bunch of free software. So it, so it, it actually it like there's a the reason why these are a popular uh, business model is because um, they they lead to like really efficient businesses, but also um, customers get a lot of free software. Um, and I and I don't just mean like free as in like oh it's cheap, but you know. A good example is is like you know, um, you want to you want the option to be able to run your infrastructure yourself. If you're going to choose a a company to build on top of, you know, you're going to be thinking in the back of your head like, hey, what if this company like 10x's its prices? Like, what are we going to do? Are we going to just be stuck with them forever? Um, so I think that from a from the buyer's perspective, you know, having an open source project that you can credibly eject onto. Um, I think is really important. And so that that's one of the reasons why, you know, we feel that Dagster open source has to be like truly, um, it's got to scale, it's got to work really well. Um, it, it's got to be usable as its own product um, end to end and be best in class with no commercial, with, without you paying us a, a cent, right? And so then the question is, okay, how do we, how do we eventually like monetize this and build a, a successful business on top? And, you know, what we find uh, is, you know, number one, we're not, being creative here, uh, we just kind of steal what GitLab lays out from from a strategic perspective. So they, there's a great um, series of talks from them called Buyer-Based Open Source, uh, and you can check it out. But basically, the idea here is that, you know, if you're a VP of engineering or VP of data, there are certain concerns that you have once you hit a certain scale where you are not going to be happy with a purely open source solution. It's not just hosting you know, sure. Like we have a self-serve product where like, we'll host it for you. And, you know, if you don't want to deal with hosting, like we can do that. Um, but really what it's about is, um, let's want certain guarantees around, you know, performance. So uptime SLAs, um, support, uh, access control and audit trails, things of that nature. And, um, so if you take a look at kind of the, the, the features and benefits of our enterprise solution. They're largely targeted at that buyer. 
additionally, we have features like that branch deployments feature that's in our that's in both our self-serve and our enterprise product. Um, so that's that's kind of that feature. It benefits large organizations. It's also really hard to deliver that as an open source product because it relies on a on a hosted GitHub app that you like click to install. Um, so there's a little bit of like it's hard to deliver that as open source also. Um, but you know, listen, over time, like we're we, you know, a lot of our like tons of innovations happening in the open source product. Like all the stuff that I've talked about happens in open source. And then we have some like cool stuff that large enterprises want. Um, so I actually uh I published a blog post called the the Divester Master Plan, where we just opened up our roadmap to the community. And so there are certain features like tracking your spend over time and putting guardrails in place, right? If you are a two-person data engineering team at a smaller company, you might be willing to run it as open source. And, you know, you're just in Slack. You're like, hey, I'm going to run this backfill. And then the, the other person code reviews and says, okay, looks good. Let's do that. But like when you start to scale up to dozens or hundreds of, of engineers that you, you need programmatic guardrails because it's really easy for somebody to kick off a backfill, a backfill being like, you know, hey, rerun the last six months of data because we had a bug in our code or something or something changed. That can cost you half a million dollars if you're not careful, right? Um, or more, depending on what type of analysis it is. And so, you know, some of the features that we're, we're kind of delivering over the next uh, couple of quarters speak to that, right? So you're a large-scale organization. You want to put like enterprise controls in place. Um, that's really kind of the stuff that we deliver on the, on the enterprise product. That's super cool. I like that approach because the the open source product is completely full featured and not, um, you know, not limited in an, in any way. But I think you're you're absolutely right that when you hit that enterprise scale, there's you have a different set of requirements and a different set of features. But also when you hit that level, um, you have a different type of customer, one who can actually afford to. Um, to pay for and support those. So I, I think that's a pretty cool approach. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we, um, we, we try to, there, there's no inherent reason why an open source, uh, like I, the reason why I'm like a little defensive, I think of the open source business model, because it does get a lot of shit on, oh, sorry. Can I swear on this? <laughs> uh, sure. It, it gets, gets a lot of, a lot of heat on hacker news, um, uh, and Reddit, right. Because there, there are some examples of companies that have done this poorly. Right, yeah. they build an open source product. It gets really popular, and then there's this bait and switch where suddenly, oh, surprise! Like if you want to actually use this for anything real, or if you want any of the new features, like you got to pay us. For sure. Uh, yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the reasons why uh, I think it's extremely unlikely that would happen to us is like, first of all, we like, you know, we're a company founded by engineers, deep open source background. Like we come from the the space, so so we like, we get it. Um, but also, uh, we started the project as a company. I think one of the reasons why a lot of these venture-backed open source businesses um, get this heat is because they start with this existing community-led open source project. Maybe it's spun out of a larger company. It grew on its own. And then they come in later. They're like, oh, we could make some money here. Let's go figure out how we can bolt our business on to this existing open source project. Yeah. Our approach at Dagster is pretty different. We like started the project and we're like, we always knew there was going to be a business attached to this. And so we we were able to kind of make decisions from the earliest days that would make sure that, you know, 
this thing could be a thriving open source project and then there could be a commercial business attached to it that doesn't like you know annoy a lot of people with our with our strategy or 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 you know be considered a bad open source citizen for sure yeah or continually bombarding them with um you know ads or um <laughs> upgrade options while you're in in there like a an ad ad driven open source experience yeah yeah we don't have any of that stuff <laughs> yeah yeah uh and I, I think the other common approach to open source software i've seen is like the red hat model you know where red hat is open source and then they're the paid portion of that is paying for professional services and I'm, I'm not intimate with their financials, but I'm pretty, I think I can safely say that they've struggled with that mm-hmm. for a number of years trying to make that model work. Well, um, you know, I, I can't speak to Red Hat. Um, you know, just we, we're not going the, the pro serve route. Um, yeah. or at least that's, that's not in the plan right now. Um, but, uh, I think that there's been this issue over the last 10 years or more where like, have you noticed that cloud technology got ubiquitously adopted? Open source got better and better developer tools and like best practices got better and better. And now we have stuff like, you know, GitHub Copilot and all these AI assisted tools, but engineering teams never got smaller. (laughs) You know, they just actually (laughs) kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and, and I think that, uh, I think there's a certain amount of misalignment between, you know, what, what is right for the, the leader, the alignment between the, the individual engineers, career development goals, the management, like middle and upper and, and C-level management's goals and the company goals are often not the same, right? And so I think that there's a tendency to be like, okay, you know, I'm a, um, you know, I'm a middle manager. If I want to pr- progress in my career, I need to grow my headcount at some point. Otherwise, I can't progress. Right. And th- like that person's not a bad person. I think middle management gets gets a lot of heat as well. But like, you know, at some point, you, like everybody's trying to progress their career, and like the fact that that's the path that they're given is is pretty bad. And I think that that we need to find new incentives to to reward managers that keep their team small and just relentlessly execute with what they have. Also, you know, on the individual contributor side, like the individual engineer, you know, we give them these incentive models too, where it's say, hey, you can't progress past senior um, or whatever your leveling system you use at your company is unless you architect a big complex system. And big complex systems are like exactly the opposite of like what an organization should be building, right? Like you actually want the <laughs> simplest, dumbest thing to solve the business problem. And you've incentivized these these. Uh, engineers to to not do that beyond a certain level. And, you know, I don't think there's like an easy answer necessarily to all of these problems, but I do think that, you know, it's, I'm just I'm guessing here, but like maybe Red Hat got over their skis a little bit in terms of um, their, uh, their burn rate and, and they had to, had to make it up on the, on the revenue side. I yeah, was looking for, sure. for a quick, easy answer. So I'm very disappointed that you don't have one. <laughs> well, I don't no, know. you haven't solved like you know the entire open source business model problem for us. What, what are we doing? I just rip off GitLab. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I do that too. You know, I always find it's best to just be like, 
Um, where's somebody else that's doing it and seems reasonably profitable? Like, I'll just, I'll just do that. Yeah. But I think I do genuinely think like, it's great that people are starting to really think about this and have this conversation because I've been kind of worried for a while and sort of the direction that I see a lot of these open source projects go where they, they have like a really great project or great tool and then they get VC funding. And I don't know if it's like inflation or what, but they just get so much VC funding. It's like, they're never going to be able to, you know, like they're never going to be able to make that up. And so then they basically destroy the tool and, uh, you know, and then I would imagine at some point the business tanks too. I don't, I don't, you know, like I don't really keep up with what happens. And I'm wondering like, oh, is it just in that in, in, inevitability? That was, um, you know, like I'm going to find this really great tool and then in a few years they're going to get VC funding and it's going to go like, so I suppose not to name names, but I really like the tool ClickUp. It's like a project management tool and it's, it's still really good. So I don't know if this is happening, but I saw they like maybe a while ago, they announced some crazy VC funding round. And I was like, oh, is this is this still going to be good or should I have my eye out for something new? So it's just it is really great that people are thinking about that and hopefully keep things small and simple and um, not inflate ourselves with funding. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that. I think just the last couple of years were especially rough. Um, you know, there, there was just so much money being thrown around. Um, I mean, you saw these mega rounds going into companies that were that barely had anything. And, you know, at, after, you know, a couple of years that, the, you know, these companies have to start to deliver on some, some degree of growth. Right. And so they start to they, they, they kind of I, I think what, what ends up actually happening is they raise a lot of money. They have a plan and then the macroeconomic environment shifts and they're like, oh man, like we don't have nearly as much time to solve this as I thought we did. And so then they start to get into desperation mode. Like, okay, how can we make a quick buck like as quickly as possible? And um, that's where you start to see, I think some of this like, you know, bait and switch or like huge um, growth, like weird growth hacks that people do um, that turn, turn a lot of open source folks off. Yeah, for sure. Because once you take VC funding, like there is an expectation that those investors are going to make a return on their investment. And the longer it takes for that to happen, the more pressure you'll receive from them. Yeah, you know, not it's it's not necessarily structurally true that that is always what happens. I think that that the VC model does permit a lot of flexibility, like the VC model supports 10 year plus drug discovery um, processes, as well as, um, you know, to-do list apps, right? So it, yeah, so it is pretty, point. it is pretty broad. Um, I think where, you know, it really does depend on who the board members are, like who, who is writing that, that big check into the company? Do they understand open source? Are they gonna be patient? You know, if you ever heard the term patient capital, are they gonna be patient? Um, and so, you know, like, I think that what happens is a lot of times founders just take the best deal and the best deal is often not from a VC that truly understands open source. So like we um, actually, we, we raised a series B, um, you know, a couple of months ago. So we are like, you know, one of these companies that raises VC money and like, like builds an open source project. Um, our, our new investor is an open source user of Dagster. And so like one of the reasons why we chose them was because like part of the diligence process was we sat down with their engineering team and they grilled us on the nuances of the UI and they like put in a bunch of feature requests and they had a bunch of bug reports 
and they had a bunch of opinions about like, you know, how, you know, what should go in open source. And I, you know, I think that that's really important that you have that like alignment uh, with the board. And you also have, you know, it, it also goes the other way too, right? Like the founders and the management team have to, you know, really understand the business that they're in, the customers that they're serving, like be able to have sometimes these difficult conversations with the investors be like, hey, you like, hey, we're going to reforecast or hey, you're going to have to wait a couple quarters while we figure out how to monetize this thing um, without alienating all of our users and while continuing to be good open source stewards. And I think that some, you hear like horror stories about boards that can't have these conversations. Um, so I think there's a lot of, I think every company is pretty different and and there's a lot of uh, sausage making behind the scenes that can get pretty ugly. Are there any especially cool new features you've added lately or ones that are coming up that you're excited about? Hmm. So we, we published the, the Dagster Master Plan blog post. So you can check that out. If you just Google Dagster Master Plan, you'll see see everything that we're working on. But there, there's a couple of things. So um, first of all, um, and actually, I can tell you a thing that um, maybe we didn't do perfectly. How about that? Um, uh, so we we shipped this really cool and innovative feature uh, in December of last year called declarative scheduling. So um, what that lets you do is if when you're building a data pipeline in like Airflow, for example, or another system, really common thing that you do is you assemble your data pipeline and you attach a cron schedule to your data pipeline. So you say this runs every hour or every day at 9 a.m something like that. Um, and we kind of turned that model on its head and we said, listen, attach freshness policies or SLAs to each individual asset and then let the system figure out how to schedule these on your behalf. And then you don't have to think about scheduling. Dexter will figure it out for you. So you just kind of, what, what used to be a project of like, if you had to produce a new data asset, you'd have to figure out which jobs to put it in, in Airflow, for example. Um, you know, in this, you just add it to your project and then Dagster will figure out when to run it for you based on its SLAs and the SLAs of everything it depends on. Uh, so it's actually kind of a challenging, interesting CS problem. Uh, the problem with that is um, when we when we launched it to Experimental, people loved it and they started adopting it. And what they realized was it made their systems like pretty unpredictable because Dagster was choosing when to run your pipelines. And so they would be like, why did Dagster just decide to rerun all these models for me? And when they would when they would come into our Slack channel and they would say, "Hey, like, what's going on?" We would say, "Well, you know, if you look at how these different SLAs interact, it's actually doing what you told it to do. We just didn't make it clear in the UI that this is what you told it to do." And so we're stabilizing that feature in our next release, and uh, we've made some tweaks to the APIs, and we have this like pretty cool. Um, explainer where like in plain English, it will explain every time that this thing runs. And then it will also simulate like runs in the future. So you can say, Hey, here's like, if you look at the next hour here, here's what's going to run and here's why. Um, so uh, that is like, that's going into the open source project, like I said, um, and it's really cool uh, and exciting. I think usability improvement, and um, it's going to make a lot of developers a lot happier. Uh, another feature that I'm really excited about is um uh, we have this new consumption management feature. We're calling it consumption management internally, but this is in that blog post um, where because we are an orchestrator that actually understands your individual assets as opposed to your ta like black box tasks. So we understand that this asset is a SQL query in Snowflake or this asset is a 
Python script that reads and writes data to S3, we can actually understand what resources that that task is consuming. Oh, this burned through 100 Snowflake credits, or this used 10 gigs of, of S3 um, uh, egress or whatever it is, right? And so we can track that and aggregate that into a single view across your whole data platform. So we can tell you things like this asset week over week is 100x more expensive. And so you can kind of catch, you know, runaway spend, or you can put guardrails in place. Um, event, we don't have the guardrails yet, but like eventually we're going to kind of build guardrails in place so like you can enforce different quotas per team. But the idea here is that, um, you know, in 2023, teams are really worried about their spend. Um, they bought a lot of tools during the tech ZERP bubble over the last couple of years. They're paying for those. They've got these big complex data pipelines that the organization needs to, to run. Um, and they're getting kind of pressure on their budgets and they have to do more with less and, and less people too. And so we're giving them these kind of new features to help them understand how much, what the resources that they're consuming, how it's trending over time and help them identify hotspots and drive it down. So again, yes, in, in the theme of like observability. That's, that's, that's what I'm really cool. excited about. Yeah, that is super cool. Cause I know we've, we've been caught off guard on several instances from data jobs that have increased a sig significant amount in cost and didn't realize it until after the fact. Especially in these complex platforms where something upstream of you can really affect the, the you know, what runs downstream. Yeah. And the worst case scenario is whenever it's the finance team asking you what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I heard a, I, I heard a, a story of, a, of a, a data engineer that kicked off a large backfill over a holiday weekend. Oh, <laughs> no. They didn't, they didn't catch it. It was uh, many six digits of spend in about four days. Oh, no. So. This is why we have no deploy Fridays, guys. Don't do it. <laughs> well, you know Don't how it, it. it. you know how it is. It's always if an emergency. If you need a no deploy ask. Friday, it means you're not using best practices yet. <laughs> Whatever. I want to enjoy my holiday weekends. This is like, listen, this That's is a hill point. I'm willing to die on. Okay. If, if you're using best practices, you can still have your holidays and deploy on Fridays. Well, I'm too paranoid for that. Like, you're just, I don't know. That's because you live in the data world. You haven't seen the light yet. <laughs> and yeah, that's, Give it 10 years. that's probably a fair point. <laughs> uh, hopefully not 10 years. <laughs> What's your release cycle look like? Do y'all do uh, frequent re releases or do you deploy hold off on for Fridays? larger? <laughs> <laughs> I so, need to know. Uh, all right. I, this is blasphemy on the DevOps, on the Adventures in DevOps podcast, but um, <laughs> we deploy once a week. But we have a reason for it. We deploy on Thursdays. Um, the reason, <laughs> good, good. Bef before, before I get kicked off uh, the show, the, the reason is, um, when we deploy our, so, so we deploy our, our cloud service, like our commercial product, um, we can deploy the backend at any time, but we generally, there's a, there's a big weekly release. And the reason is it's synchronized with an open source release. And so, you know, we don't want to be cutting like dozens of open source releases every week because like every time people pip install, they're going to like reinstall. And there's always some risk when you're deploying kind of like installable software onto a bunch of people's laptops. So uh, we try to limit that to um, to a weekly like point release for the open source project, 
And then we'll have a, an every six weeks major release of the open source project. So the cloud service usually deploys weekly, sometimes more often. Um, and, and that's usually on Thursdays uh, alongside a, an open source push. Right on. So it's like a plus so standard Python stack. I don't think that's blasphemous. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I, 100%. I, I think the whole point of, of continuous delivery and all this stuff is to let the business decide when to deploy and to not be held captive or, or you know, to not, to not be a slave to the, 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 the slow technical progress of the development team. You know, that, that should be a business decision, not a technical one. And if that's the deci- business decision you're making for whatever reason, good or bad or whatever, that's exactly where DevOps should get you. It should get you to the point where the business makes the decision instead of the business being held hostage to, to uh, inadequate technology. Okay. That, I mean, that makes me feel better about it. Um, <laughs> so I, I've got a question. Um, would, I get in, um, would I get put in DevOps timeout if I told you we had a manual QA step the night before we deploy on Thursday? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, <laughs> we do, we do okay, do well, thanks QA for step. listening, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we we weren't always doing that. We had a um, we were moving really fast for a while, and we we um, we wanted to level up our quality, so we did introduce a manual QA step. But I I, I didn't feel great about it. So I'm, I'm curious what what yeah if you're interested in talking about that, what led to that, and and you know what were the business decisions and, and technical decisions that led to that? <sighs> that's a that's a good question. Um, we we had a number of so, so we we're not a huge team, you know. We we're uh, we're about a forty-five person company. About, uh, I would say, like around a little under thirty are would be considered like R and D. So you know, like a product person, a uh, head of product, and a, a, a head of design, and then a bunch of engineers. Um, and though everyone kind of works on different pieces, so. You know, for example, there's a there's a team that works just kind of on the core APIs. They don't really work too much on the front end, and they can kind of change the state of different data models in the front end. Um, so specifically around scheduling, right? Like there, there's a team that works on the on the APIs and the infrastructure for scheduling, and then there's another team that works on the u- user interface portion. And the, basically, the user interface. There was a couple of weeks in a row where we had a release, and there were some assumptions made about the data model on the front end that changed. Basically, they they held at one point in time, but they changed over time, and it wasn't something that you. I, I don't remember the exact bug, but it wasn't something you could like encode in the type system because we do use GraphQL to kind of like talk between the front end and the back end. We try to like use as much best practices as possible, but um, there were just a couple of those cases in a row where um, the front end uh, just got out of sync with with some of the um, the changes being made on the kind of API and the back end side. So. There is probably a way um, we we have we have made steps to like level up our test automated testing game and right the, the correct answer here is that the team working on those changes should have a front end person attached or they should work in the front end and they should test it end to end more thoroughly. Um, but we kind of introduced this just because we had a couple of of uh, ru- kind of bad deploys in a row where we had to cut new releases and fix bugs. So um, we view it as like kind of a temporary thing. It's stuck around, not because we've, we haven't had a quality issue. This was like 
end of Q3, early Q4 last year is when we introduced it. And we haven't had any failed deploys since then, actually. Uh, but we have kept it around because it gets it's a structured kind of hour where all the engineers pile into one Zoom call and kind of use the product. And we think there's like some degree of positive, you know, it's good to get engineers using the product, maybe touching features that they haven't touched before. Maybe it gives them a little bit of customer empathy. And also we take an ex- it's like a productive excuse to get people like into the same virtual room and like hanging out and talking. So we did keep it for that. I think we could take it away and um, and still be fine from a quality perspective. And when we do do those off-cycle deploys, we don't do a manual QA before those, but still, it, we do have a manual QA step. I love that, that you have, it sounds like you have the whole team involved or at least a large portion of the team. It's not yeah. just like, you're not throwing it over the wall to to a tester who, yeah. who maybe does some things and ping-pongs it back a few times or whatever, which, which is the big anti-pattern that, that we sometimes see, right? Yeah, yeah. You're, every engineer is responsible for their own work. And then um, oftentimes our, our head of product will be kind of the in-house uh, QA engineer, um, c- kind of covering the, the stuff that maybe the engineers aren't covering. It's hard for me to hate that. Then. Yeah, for um, sure. I, I, don't, I can't find a problem with taking, setting aside time to dedicate to using the product that you're building for your customers. I don't see a downside to that. I think if, if I were managing that team, I would probably try to rename that from QA to something more like dog food or something. That's, that's just to, to sort of change the mental model. Uh, you know, so it doesn't feel food? like, to not feel like there's an opportunity for someone else to catch my bugs, you know, so I can relax. Uh, but I, I like it, like Will said, I really like that approach, you know, of, of getting everybody involved in, in exploring the product and learning new things about it. I like that aspect of it. So I don't like, I don't dislike what you described. Have you ever eaten the food that you feed your dog, Jillian? No. Why? Have you never heard <laughs> is the that, Is there like the some point. kind of reference here that I'm not understanding? Have you never like, heard the term you... dog fooding, Jillian? No, I haven't. What? No. Apparently next there's something next week on Adventures in DevOps, we'll be feeding <laughs> Jillian dog food. No, we won't. <laughs> All right. No, we most definitely will not. We, we have in this the actual... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Pete. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if that's the actual origin of the word. That's my assumption. But yeah, I've been there like putting out food for my dogs and like, what exactly is this? And then you eat it and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> All right. We have an so internal it, it, deployment. It comes from a, I just looked it up. I Googled it. Okay. And Google is never wrong. So the term comes from a well-known 1976 television spot for Alpo dog food starring actor Lorne Green. Oh yeah! Apparently, he ate the, the his own dog food. Um, Interesting. Oh no, he, he he fed he fed his own dog. So apparently, I, I don't know. Anyway, the, the, Jillian, the point is, if you're dog fooding, it means you're using your own product. Okay. All right. Um, I think maybe <laughs> the internet should come up with a different term for that, but I'll. You know, I'll accept it and just say, I think that's great, too. I think it's great for especially like, you know, projects that have many sides for like all the teams to get together at some point and use things. And I'm sure there's like a lot of, um, you know, like collaboration and a lot of talking back and forth. It's useful in and of itself. You know, even if you're not necessarily catching any bugs or anything like that, I'm sure that just having different people collaborating is always a good thing. 
we uh are we have an internal deployment of Dagster that powers like our sales dashboards and our and a lot of internal stuff, and it's called Purina. Um, <laughs> there's nice. there's just something here that I'm just not getting, and I don't know. It's all right. I'll I'll fall down a Google hole later. I think the moral of the story is that we should all be cooking our dogs like fillets for dinner or some sort of nice, nice food. I had a friend. I, I, I think Jillian needs to do that. I don't have a problem calling it. Dog I don't food. even have a dog. What am like? Why is everybody <laughs> on me about this? Well, I first up, you got to get a dog. Yeah, I know. You know first what? Actually, I can, I can get behind this plan. Actually, I would love to have a dog. I'm trying to convince my husband. <laughs> For a while, he was very opposed to pets, and now all of a sudden, we have one cat, and then he came home another day with another cat, and so I've been like, you know, on TikTok, there's like a hashtag of uh, like dads who don't want cats, and just the aftermath. Yes. <laughs> all right, Julie, <laughs> like just tell your husband. Just keeps growing. Just tell your husband you have to get a dog for the show. All right, you know that's it's it. Required. Business expense, honey. What are, what are you going to do? You put up with all the computers that I have. Um, now there's a dog right. too. Yeah, that's right. I did have a friend that um, grilled chicken and rice, grilled chicken and cooked rice for his dog. And that's all the dog ate was chicken and rice. Wow. Yeah, I've had friends that have done that too. I didn't think it was that unusual. Get a big instant pot and just, you know, make one pot meals for me, make one pot meals for the dog, like for everybody. Everybody can have it. We, we got a, um, uh, a rescue dog back when we lived in San Francisco. And, um, she definitely had some behavioral issues as a lot of rescue dogs do. And so the, the vet thought that um, she might have a food allergy. And so the vet says, listen, you know, the, you need to give your dog like really natural food that is like not going to have any allergen. So, you know, like boiled duck, I think is like the, the safe option for this dog. So give her boiled duck for a week. That's and not it's like, at all. Yeah, it's that really dog bad. is eating better than you are. <laughs> so there, was a, there was a week where this dog was eating like Michelin starred meals, and my house, my apartment smelled like boiled duck, which was uh, which was not great. Did you at least drain the grease and, and use it for some fries or something? Uh, it was it was definitely used for something. I don't know if it was used for fries. It was used for potatoes. Okay, so we've covered from uh, data to open source business models to dog food. Yes. I think this is a well rounded podcast. Literal dog covered just about everything. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to. Picks. You didn't just have the whole day for us. Like it wasn't. It wasn't just all scheduled out. You know, I, I did until this morning, and then somebody put a meeting. I, I had a buffer, a buffer section just for this pr- purpose, but someone just took it. So sorry. Okay, about that. we'll forgive you. This I hate time. it when people take those open spots in my calendar. Yeah, I, I oh. send people Calendly links, and they they use them. They, they use them. Oh, those bastard jerks. <laughs> <laughs> I got to put my vacation time in my calendar yesterday. It was deeply satisfying. You know, when Google asks you, like, oh, do you want to decline all all meetings, like all current and future meetings? And I'm just like, absolutely, I do. Right. Smash that enter key as hard as you can. <laughs> I can, yeah. A party for me. Cool. Who's got a pick ready for us? I've got one. All right, bring it on. I'm going to do the shameless self-promotion again this week. Nice. Uh, we, we've hit a, a nice milestone of my other podcast called Cup of Go. We've had uh, close to 15,000 downloads and we are about to land our second sponsor. And we had one episode with over a thousand downloads. So we're doing pretty well. It's oh, pretty, right pretty popular. Great. So if, nice. if you are even remotely interested, 
in the Go language. And if you're doing DevOps, you, you should be because, you know, there's a huge overlap there. Uh, you should check out the Cup of Go podcast, cupogo.dev. Uh, it's a weekly Go related news podcast. And we usually, uh, most weeks, we interview somebody in the community about something Go related. So check that one out. Nice. Jillian, you have a pick for us? I do. I'm going to pick Panel. It's a Python uh, like data visualization framework. And something that I really like about it that was missing in other visualization frameworks that shall remain nameless is this idea of having, they used to be called like wizard forms or step forms or something. But the idea is that you have a form that has like multiple uh, steps and steps depend upon other steps, you know, which is kind of relevant, I suppose, for the show that we have too. And I just really appreciate that that is built in and that I don't like have to hack it on somewhere just in some ridiculous fashion. It can also be developed just like within um, a notebook, within a Jupyter notebook, which is kind of nice for development, you know, like because it just shows up right there as a widget. Um, it's called Panel. I think it's, you might have to Google like Panel Python. Otherwise, you might get something with Windows. Excellent. Right on. All right, Pete, putting you on the spot. All right, I got two. The first is um, technical thing. So there's a Python library called SQL Glot. It can parse and transform um, every SQL dialect under the sun. So if you want to build any tooling related to SQL, um, it is extremely useful. Oh, wow. Uh, so I would definitely suggest uh, checking out SQL Glot if you ever feel the, the urge to do static analysis or transformation of SQL. And, um, the second one is um, I like to play guitar and I really hate Holland uh heavy and expensive and fragile gear. And so I recently got uh, this thing called an iRig and this uh, app called Amplitude for my iPad. And so now my entire guitar rig is like an iPad, this little dongle where you can plug your guitar in and then a like a powered speaker, which is like really lightweight. And so it went from like hauling 80 pounds of stuff to just like a little, little iPad. It's great. Oh, sweet. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, it's great. Cool. Um, so my pick for the week is going to be the O'Reilly book, The Staff Engineer's Path from Tanya Riley. Actually, a pretty cool book uh, specifically for people who want who are looking for ways to grow their career, but not necessarily wanting to go down the management path. Staff engineer is definitely a path to pursue. And the book's been pretty handy so far. Um, the part I like about it is you can just jump to different sections, for example, um, one of the big things I always struggle with is there's decisions being made in meetings that I don't know about, but feel the repercussions of those. So there's an entire chapter on how to navigate the social structure of your company to find out where those meetings are being held and get yourself invited to them. So if you're interested in a non-management career path, staff engineer might be for you. And the book has been pretty good so far. And with that, we are wrapping up our time here so that Pete can make it to his next meeting. Pete, it's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed having you on. Thank you. Thanks for having Thanks me. This is great. All right. We'll see everyone next week. <laughs>